0: Hi, I'm Kathy Bixel, and welcome to the Kathy Bixel Podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. For me, it feels great to be back in my podcast chair. Uh, I want to um, apologize to those of you who are our subscribers that you have noticed that I probably haven't had a, uh, a new episode uploaded for the past three weeks, but I have a lot going on in my personal life. We have sold our home and have been in search of a new place to live and everything that goes with that, which you can possibly imagine. So on top of dealing with uh, all the COVID things and uh, taking care of mom and uh, everything we have going on in our own home. It's just been a busy season. So please don't forget to subscribe so that when I do upload an episode, uh, which generally is weekly, that you can stay abreast of everything that we're releasing here at Kathy Bixel Ministries. But for today, we are going to uh, continue our discussion on the differences between socialism and capitalism in regards to how each one of them respectively measures up to the truths, the principles, and ideals that are communicated through scripture. This is a part six, episode six, of our series on cultivating a Christian worldview. And as a reminder, that is how we process and respond to world events, our personal things, uh, issues and ideologies that are being bantered about in the public square, how we respond to them. Do we just go along with the crowd or do we take Uh, the perspective that is communicated about life and how God has ordained us to live, how he has ordered nature and um, man's part in nature, how he has created us to function? Do we look at that as the plumb line for how we form our opinions, or do we go with the crowd? So we are continuing that discussion today as we've been, uh, as we took the, which is something that of course we can't escape right now is the, uh, political upheaval within our country, and so I thought it would be a good idea to just take these two different ideologies around uh, economic and political thought, which is socialism versus capitalism, and just in a very uh, you know methodical way examine each one of them and give you food for thought. I will of course um, interlace my own personal opinion. What I what I and when I say personal opinion, I mean the opinion. I believe, is being formed through scripture and communicate that to you. And so hopefully, um, uh, you know, this has been uh, helpful to you. I know we have gotten some great feedback uh, that it will spur you on to your own study, but to just not take the sound bites that are out there in the media on just about anything, but learn to study um, on your own. There's plenty of resources that can help guide you along the way. So, the one thing that we understand from a biblical worldview is that, from a biblical point of view, society is inhabited and uh, built up by unique individuals that have a free will that are made in god's image and personally accountable to him the bible speaks a lot about personal responsibility and accountability before each other and also before god Um, each man will stand before the judgment seat of christ you don't get to bring someone with you um, as a collective you go individually um and Thankfully, uh, the founders, the founders of our nation captured this ideal that was communicated through Scripture when they declared that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is, um, are, are the inalienable rights that our Creator has bestowed upon us not governments, not the state, but they are the inalienable rights that we have by virtue of our birth as creations of God. This is what God bestows on us, the ideal and the uh, the uh, unalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God gives them to us. We have not been promised the equality of the same results of our lives. And I think this becomes the point of a defection, so to speak, of really what our inalienable, unalienable rights are. It is, we are not born with a guarantee we are all going to end up equally the same because we all have a free will to make choices in our journey of life on, uh, that will determine the outcomes of our lives. So that is not the guarantee that we have been given. Government, though they do not bestow those rights on us, government is there to help protect those rights. And in fact, when we look over our history as the voting rights movements, the civil rights movements, all of those were... Um, were were movements that were energized with an end result of having government change laws so that those unalienable rights could be, um experienced. So the voting rights, you you're for a woman not to have a right to vote is clearly not, you know, congruent with the seeking of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The same with the civil rights movement. there a, a person of color should not be treated different. A, a person of color should not uh, have different rights than a Caucasian person. So what we did was, well, not me personally, because I wasn't there, but what they did at the time was they moved in the direction of creating a movement so that government would institute laws that would protect those rights. So that is the role of government. Government doesn't give give them to us. It protects what God has given. It seems like a little nuance, but it is important as we move forward into understanding the role of government in our life, what it is to be and what it isn't to be. Um, So, God is no respecter of persons, and uh, through his word, uh, there it is communicated that um, justice should not favor a particular segment of society over another, just because it seems, especially today, politically correct. Justice is measured. We talked about that in the first uh, couple of episodes uh, in this series, that justice is measured by God's standard of Not the latest philosophical goals of secular professors, but justice is the standard of God that he has established in scripture. So someone in the culture doesn't tell us what's righteous. What the Father tells us and communicates through the word of God is his righteousness. And so that should become a standard. And so justice is not meted out by color or gender, or if you like someone or you don't like someone, justice should be rendered justice as according to God's standards. A perfect example is in Exodus 23, verses 2 through 3, Moses says, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Check that one out. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Now, that doesn't sound very uh, proletarian, right? That certainly doesn't. Now, we have in our last session, we already in uh, taking two, we took two whole episodes to talk about uh, socialism. We, so we have already addressed the question of whether um, scripture issues protocols that designate government as the one that equalizes wealth. We've already talked about that. And we discovered in our study that actually redistributing private property for political purposes is, in fact, immoral, as it violates the idea of personal accountability that we saw God himself has established So the Bible, when we read the Bible, we see that the Bible requires work, frugal living. The Bible uh, promotes honesty and integrity in business dealings. It mandates impartial justice, sound money and property rights. Plus, the Bible endorses liberty, all the essentials of what we find out undergird capitalism. Uh, Jesus even used free market principles repeatedly in his teaching. He clearly appreciated in some of uh, the parables that he taught, he appreciated price signals in the market and the role of incentives. And even though Jesus, of course, wasn't teaching on finances, we can extrapolate from the lessons and the parables that he taught how he felt about how we should, uh, how economic life should be run. So, for example, the parables of the talents and the, mina, the minas <laughs> offer wise investment advice. And the primary one that we see in this parable is that it is prudent to entrust resources to those multiplying those resources and extract resources from those squandering them. Remember those parables? So right there, that parable counters the Marxist principle of progressive taxation, taking from the most productive to subsidize those wasting resources that are scarce. So in those scriptures alone, we see the the principles that Jesus is communicating. We don't see the word capitalism in the Bible. We don't see the word socialism, but we can look at the the undergirding values associated with each philosophy and find which ones are, you know, you know, not that are in opposition to the values and the principles that Jesus taught. The the point that I want to drive home that I want you to walk away with after this podcast is when we compare these philosophies, it is interesting that the manifestation of the ugly side of modern capitalism, and I'm going to talk about that, has coincided with the acceleration of the secularization of our culture. Uh, when people have no absolute of right or wrong, which our culture insistent, you know, consistently now progressively is having, what ensues is unjust practices. And all the greed um and the um lack of integrity um and uh, the abuse of power that we currently see in modern in the modern form or expression of capitalism, because there's no. Uh, knowledge of biblical prescriptions for dealing with money or how to have fair lending practices and, and how not to be covetousness, all the sins in the system of capitalism that we have to be honest now exist, their manifestation has coincided with the increasing movement away from judeo-christian ethics undergirding our religious uh, truly and our government and our political and economic systems so what i want to uh uh convey to you is that capitalism in its traditional form the way that it was spoken about through uh, its uh, the fathers of that thought which was Adam Smith and Max Weber that the as two of the earliest proponents and thought to be the fathers of capitalist thought that it it is different than the modern one what we see in our day, we're seeing more of the ugly side of capitalism manifest because the values that undergirded and drove capitalism in its early days are now vanishing, vanishing from the modern expression of capitalism which is why we see the kind of huge wealth gap that we cannot ignore and this this as christians this should bother us it should bother us that that capitalism has now turned into more of an individualistic Um, expression as opposed to its traditional expression, which was more for the common good, because the values of Christianity drove it and undergirded, undergirded it. Now those principles are vanishing. And we cannot, as Christians, honestly, and having the heart of Christ, not realize that some work has to be done that this wealth gap does in fact have consequences and it is why we are experiencing what we are now, the upheaval, because as this gap has grown, um, as it has grown, it is causing this upheaval. We can not ignore it and we shouldn't, and we're going to talk about that. Um, as, as we move through the podcast. But one of the things that I did want to mention that I referred to in our last podcast is that the solution to these ills is not a, uh, a philosophy where everybody has equal amounts of everything. That's not the answer, because we're going to find out that that works against nature. But one of the scriptures that, quote, socialist uh, uh, Christian socialists refer to is in the book of Acts, where they said that the, the book of Acts, the story in the book of Acts, that uh, discusses uh, in Acts chapter four that discusses how um, the Christians shared what they had is the standard and the proof that we are all supposed to have communal living. And what I want to say to you is that, you know, we Throw out the baby with the bathwater with this using this scripture because what we don't realize is that we are taking it out of its context and and promoting that above a lot of other scriptures that we cannot ignore that um that pretty much stand against this idea of a communal uh, living arrangement. So in Acts chapter four really what we saw happen was that in the early church, they welcomed the Jews and the proselytes from the diaspora at the time of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 4, all those travelers that were there uh, that came into Jerusalem, the early Christians pooled their possessions in loving fellowship in a voluntary way. It was a voluntary communal living arrangement that was uh, instituted to address the problem of these menus that were impoverished um, that were that were literally homeless And so the church reached out to them but there is no evidence, Um, that this communal arrangement spread beyond Jerusalem or persisted any longer than that emergency situation did. And none of the epistles, and this is even the most important, none of the epistles indicates this communal living. And as I I read one author put it, and this was great, Privately entrusting resources to St. Peter in the, in the way that we did in Acts chapter 4 in submission to God to help differs greatly from, quote, robbing selected Peter to pay for collective Paul through a distant bureaucratic apparatus inspired by the humanistic God of power. In other words, the Bible never endorses involuntary socialism administered by secular governments. So that is, I I needed to mention that because Acts chapter 4, they shared everything and had everything in common. And people say, oh, see, this is how Christians are supposed to live. We're supposed to share everything that is not something that is supposed to be instituted by government and never in any of the epistles or throughout early church history did we see that it was the church it was the response of the Jerusalem church to address an impending social need and it's what they did in that moment at that time to eradicate it uh, you can't just use that story and forget about all the other scriptures, which I, hopefully I've repeated enough now to where you're all getting the point, but, uh, and also along these lines, um, I think it's fun to examine uh, really when, when you think about it, um, and you study it, most Americans do not know that the actual, um, that the actual first economic system in America was, in fact, socialist. That uh, when we celebrate Thanksgiving every November, we are the reason we are celebrating it is because of the changes that were made to a failed commune. Um, William Bradford, and and I remember when I saw a documentary on this, I was floored because I I really didn't know this. And then further study, I was able to get more information. But William Bradford's uh, actual, his diary of the Plymouth plantation gives us some great insights into what exactly happened. Um, One of the earliest and and uh, arguably most uh, historically significant North American colony was the Plymouth Colony founded in 1620. Um, And it was known, of course, as Plymouth in in Massachusetts. And as the original colony of which William Bradford was the leader, remember, they all came over from Europe, from Holland and England, they all came over fleeing persecution. um, And they, when they planted the colony, their charter had in it, its original charter, had a system of communal property and labor. Um, as he recorded in his diary, the people who had formerly been known in Europe for their virtue and hard work became lazy and unproductive. As a result of this communal property and labor. Uh uh situation that they had established in the colony because they thought, well, this is an experiment. Let's all pool everything and do everything together. As a result, people became lazy and unproductive, the resources were squandered, the vegetables were allowed to rot on the ground, mass starvation was the result. And of course, where there is starvation, there is a plague. And after two and a half years, The leaders of this colony decided to abandon their socialist mandate and create a system instead that honored private property. And um, spectacularly, the colony survived and thrived, and the abundance which resulted was what we actually, or what they actually, celebrated at the iconic Thanksgiving feast. Because prior to instituting the private property initiative, and uh, depending on that communal living, they were pla- they were plagued with disease, poverty. They the the colony was actually on the verge of extinction, and so you might ask the question, which I did: how, Why would they try this socialistic experiment? Karl Marx wasn't even born yet. But what is interesting is that why they. Uh, Why Bradford and the early colonists formed the colony this way and wrote this socialist experiment into their charter was because it was the hip philosophy of their day— Uh, The the philosophical and religious thinking of the early 17th century was formed by Plato. He was kind of the hip professor of their day in the early 17th century, and Plato himself in his philosophy believed in central planning by intellectuals in the context of communal property. Um, He believed that education should be centralized, the state should be centralized— Cultural uh, culture itself should be centralized, and there should actually even be a communal family structure. Um, for Plato, it actually did take a village to raise a child uh, back in his day. And that movement from Plato, actually, I discovered burst uh, movements and groups of people. Try this one the true levelers. It was a group that was birthed out of Plato's teaching. Everybody had to have a level playing field, level everything out. Everybody has to have the same thing. And then this other group that emerged called the diggers. Now, I couldn't find out exactly maybe what the group called the diggers was, but I kind of think it was probably, they dug into your, they were digging into everybody else's pockets for themselves. That would be my guess. But they were mass movements of people who believed that property and income distinctions should be eliminated. See, there is nothing new under the sun. This is back in the early 17th century, or early, uh, early 17th century. And, um, they believed that the wealthy should have their property expropriated and that they should now, uh, which I guess now is what we call the 99%. So that kind of thinking was rife in the 1600s. And it is thought historically why the pilgrim settlers settled for a charter, which did not create a private property system. So if we really want to be honest, America began with a socialist economy that ended very quickly. And so what the colonies leaders decided, they completely scrapped That charter, and they changed course and allotted a parcel of land to each settler, hoping that the private ownership of all the farms would encourage self-sufficiency and lead to a greater cultivation of their crops. And the new system worked wonderful. Matter of fact, Bradford wrote in his diary, this had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious. In fact, Much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been, and productivity increased. Women, for example, he went on to write, went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn. Uh, It was just an, an amazing, amazing turnaround. And so the famine that nearly wiped out the pilgrims gave way to a period of abundance that enabled those Massachusetts settlers to set down permanent roots in the new world to prosper, and ultimately it played an indispensable role in the success of the future Um, American experiment. Now Bradford, who was profoundly religious, and I'll close uh, with this about his story, saw the hand of God in the pilgrims' economic recovery. He observed writing in his diary, we may well evince the vanity of that conceit that the taking away of property would make men happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God for God in his wisdom saw another course fitter for them. Isn't that great? I just think that's an important story. And so at Thanksgiving, you have to remind your children that this is why we we have to celebrate Thanksgiving because we were freed from socialism is actually the reason why. So as we go on here, um, is, I wanted to talk to you about... Um, The two historical influencers of capitalist thought, which is Adam Smith and Max Weber. And of course, I'm not going to study this in great detail and teach on it in great detail, but only to show you uh, the early underpinnings of capitalism and actually what it is. Um, and when we talk about Adam Smith, I remember reading his book in college, The Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. He also wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, there's a lot of scholar scholarly debate about Adam Smith's personal faith. Um, there's some uh, historic, historical scholars, history scholars that believe that he really wasn't that religious, although his father was a very strong Christian. But there is a whole other argument that uh, Smith, in fact, was very spiritual because his social and economic philosophy is inherently theological, and that his entire model of social order uh, is logically dependent on the notion of God's action in the world. And so it is thought to believe that even though he may not have outwardly said it, uh, it, it his work on what f- his thoughts that actually formed our capitalist system were very theological in nature. Um, The things that you walk away from what Adam Smith actually wrote about and his thought was his understanding of the role of human nature as it relates to economics, how God made us to be. Um, and it stands to reason, right, that what works against nature will fail. And this is the part of capitalism that is its strong suit. Inherent in its, in its thought is it aligns with how The the world and we as men and women were created to function in the earth, in God's natural order, how God made us to be. He believed in the power of free markets, this is Smith, and the existence of both competition and cooperation in healthy systems And also, what he called the invisible hand, the self correcting nature of markets. Adam Smith wrote about fair and just tax policies. And interestingly, um, ironically enough, he warned against uh, the damage that banks would do if they were greedy and irresponsible in their lending practices or management of their reserves. Um, So, he even early on knew that the dangers of capitalism were could lie with the banks if if the hearts of bankers were not moral and that's a that's a key here because the early one of the key demises and scandals in our modern expression of capitalism was in 2008 with the one of many the lehman brothers scandal we had the enron scandal all of these that began to manifest at you know as we entered into the millennial millennium that you know as the millennium turned rather that we began to see what unredeemed man can do to an economic system that had great promise to it. Um, Another thing that is uh, important to note about Adam Smith is one of the highlights of his philosophy was his complete disdain for slavery. And in fact, Wilbur Wilberforce, appealed to him uh, for uh, help when he argued uh, in the House of Commons for the abolition of slavery. So Adam Smith was well, well respected for his um, for this this thought that was, um, really rooted in scripture, but established liberty and freedom that God created us free. And that the more we were able to function freely with the moral boundaries of God's ethics around us, the more prosperous we would be. Um, now the next contributor, to uh, capitalist thought was Max Weber. And as I said, you can study these men again on your own. He, of course, tapped into something fascinating, which uh, which produced his work, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And basically what Max Weber did was unearth what he believed was the driving force of the success or the spirit of capitalism in America. And what he came to realize was that there was an ethos, an underlying ethic that connected religious belief with economic activity. And that resulted in a sort of um, devotional zeal that powered the engine of wealth creation in our nation. Uh, those who had capital, he discovered, were primarily primarily Protestant Christians, and he began to uncover how a believer organized his life had a direct impact on his economic prosperity. Now, to me, that fascinates me because he is right. That is uh, the Puritan heritage was heritage was lodged in an ethic that really. Uh, drove how those, those early colonists, um, and even up into the Industrial Revolution, you hear about Henry Ford and uh, Rockefeller, all of these had strong biblical um, anchoring to how they lived their lives. They took principles on how to live life. And order them into their days. And that is that that Protestant work ethic is what Max Weber believes is such an integral part of why capitalism succeeded, especially in America. Um, he quoted the writings of Ben Franklin, um, whose own autobiography, Franklin quoted Proverbs twenty two twenty nine, 29, where the scripture says, see a man vigorous in his vocational calling, he shall stand before Kings as long. And, and, and Franklin wrote that as long as it is carried out in a legal manner, the acquisition of wealth in the modern economic order, this is his words, is the result and manifestation of competence and proficiency in a vocational calling. So there was in our in early America because of the awakenings, the great first great awakening before the revolutionary war and the second great awakening, it fed into the moral fabric of our culture. That is why we need, I am saying, we need another awakening. Another awakening is just not going to impact the harvest of souls coming into the kingdom of God. It is meant to reform our culture so that the things that we want to see changed happen from the heart outward. If people change, economies change, social outreaches change, education changes. Okay, are you hearing me? This is such an important component of where we should be headed as a nation. Um, The Puritans thought it was virtuous to prosper in your daily life and order your life um, in behaviors that promoted your success. And those behaviors were rooted in prescriptions from the scriptures. And they also thought, and believe that there is no room for a secular, sacred divide, that we work unto God, and that society flourishes when we recognize the priesthood of every believer, um, that we were to exhibit holy, the holiness of God, holy characteristics in our daily lives. Isn't that powerful? So to sum it up, what Weber believed is that as long as we kept these virtues and values from that ethic highlighted and celebrated in our culture, capitalism would continue to be the most useful economic. Um, way to conduct economic activity in our country and around the world. So that is he had a powerful contribution to understanding the power of capitalism. And um, so as we move forward, when we uh, if we understand capitalism as a philosophy, we have to recognize that it has capitalism as a philosophy has actually helped our nation and other nations. By far, it is responsible for the vast degree of global wealth. Um, Just to give you some facts, and um, I forgot to write down uh, the, the source for these facts, but they are facts, not from my head, but from a source, um, that since the 1800s, the world's population has grown six times larger, that the GDP, or the gross domestic product, for those of you that may not know, has grown 11 times greater. Since 1990 alone, global poverty has more than halved gone from 43% of the people of the globe being impoverished to 21. It's gone from 21% uh, from, I need to start that again. It is is gone from uh, 43% of the globe being impoverished to 21%. And in developing countries, the GDPs have increased by an average of 6%. So that is good news. And as incomes have grown, so has longevity. The average person in the world lives 20 years longer than that recorded in the middle of the last century. And infant mortality has fallen by an astonishing 65%. So when we look at the overall living standards, human beings across the globe have prospered to, agree that, to a degree they never have in human history, and that is largely due to the capitalist system. We've had healthcare advances, technological advances, all that have been possible because of the investment of capital. But, but with that said, we have to honestly admit that there is a lot of work to be done around how modern capitalism is being expressed. In fact, according to um, an Oxfam charity study, the world's combined wealth is in the hands of 1% of the population. Therefore, you get, you know, the Occupy Wall Street. You get those who say 1% of something's wrong here. And as few as eight individuals, now listen to this, eight individuals are as wealthy as half the population of the entire world combined six billion people. I will say that again, as few as eight individuals are as wealthy as half the population of the entire world combined six billion people. Now, why is this a problem? This is a problem because one billion people on this planet still live on less than a dollar twenty-five a day. Now, I could sit back in my um, in my suburban home with my suburban car and you know, I could say, oh, that's great. Capitalism has helped me and my family and my children and and incrementally, generationally, the generations in my family line have spurred under this system, especially my ancestors that came from Ireland and France and, and Italy. They came here for that freedom and that they have prospered under this system. But As a Christian, it has to bother me that there are still more people that have to be lifted up. There are still more people that can experience the freedom and the liberty and that people do suffer when capitalism is hijacked by greedy, evil people. And so there, we have to address that greed. We have to address it. Now, does anybody have a God-given right to create that amount of wealth? Yes, they do have that right. But my question is, my, um, my observation is that, that there are ways that we can improve it so that it becomes better for all. And as Christians especially, we should want that, right? We should want that. And as I began to study this, it so bothered me. I was like, Lord, you know, this has to be an answer because we have to be honest about the defects in the capitalist system. And it led me to um, this book. And I would encourage you to read it if this at all interests you, but it certainly was a fascinating book for me. Um, And I think any patriot should want to, because if we keep ignoring these discrepancies, we are going to keep having some of the problems we're having. Um, And the name of the book is, appropriately so, Redeeming Capitalism by Kenneth Barnes. And what Barnes does is he draws from the teachings of our Christian fathers And his primary thesis is that the modern capitalism has lost its virtue. And that, which is pretty much what I had suggested to you in the beginning of the podcast, why it's failing is because we are now where capitalism and our economic system had spiritual underpinnings, it now has secular humanistic underpinnings. And so there's no right or wrong anymore. It's all relative. So I can decide to do something to put, um, to make, to cook my books for my board members so that my price, my, the price of my stock isn't what it should be, but I can deceive people if I just do some tricky accounting practices and nobody will know the difference. But the fact is, people do know the difference. What Bernie, Bernie Mayoff was able to get away with impacted a lot of people. So what Bern, uh, he goes on to say is that And in his book, which I like about this book, is that he is a great defender of capitalism as an economic philosophy, philosophy, but he challenges those who vehemently oppose socialism to at least come to terms with the ugly side of capitalism. Basically, um, he provokes us to imagine a virtuous capitalism where individuals And companies, communities, and policymakers make economic choices consistent with the universal truths and those that are Christian at core. So he provokes us in this book to, you know, imagine an economic system with all of the wealth-generating possibilities of capitalism, of the capitalism we have, plus the social benefits of a capitalism we should desire, a system that I would hope would embrace and enthusiastically embrace what he calls, and I love this, and I quote, common grace for the common good. And so the early proponents of and formers of capitalistic thought like Adam Smith and Wa- and Max Weber, um, Kenneth Barnes goes on to say that they would literally turn over in their graves to see the capitalism that we are now practicing because it is no longer and I quote undergirded by faith in a higher power or to observe commerce failing to assume commonly held beliefs about right and wrong morality and immorality and so that is an important an important part of understanding why we're seeing the clash in our culture. And when we have a Christian worldview, we need to honestly look at the areas where capitalism has its sins. Socialism is not the answer to the sins of capitalism. And I honestly believe that because Marxism at its core is anti-Christ. And I could say that um, we can sell it as Christian, and it's, some people are buying it as Christian because of the Acts four. Let's have everything common in you know together. But the fact of the matter is, if we start burning Bibles. It's no longer a Christian socialism. It is Marxism laced with with anti Christ thought. All the way through it. And as a Christian, we should want to have the opportunity to recognize that our light can shine and we can be proponents and have creative ideas to help capitalism be redeemed because it has absolutely worked. It just needs to work for more people. We need to get laws. Laws in there that um, hold people accountable, but really the overriding, the overriding, overarching theme of as I come to a conclusion after forty-five minutes of this podcast because I didn't want to cut it into two, is that when we approach any philosophy, any thought, and especially cap- cap- the the changes we want to see to capitalism in our country, is that It's got to change in our hearts. And the only person who could really transform the human heart, law can just go so far in stopping things that are evil, but it is the human heart redeemed by the love of Jesus Christ. And that is why this revivalist has taken the time to teach you methodically over these past several episodes, these philosophical, um, uh, theories so that we can understand and be in the public square in an educated way to debate, to debate with reason, to debate with understanding, to stop the name-calling, and to be able to understand where others are coming from. That 99 percent are, there are within that 99% at that bottom rung are people really suffering that don't see it working for them. And we need to say, okay, sharing everything is going to destroy the whole system. Let's just pray. Let's get awakened and let's fix the current one. Let the spirit of God redeem it so that we can help our fellow man and that we can all be lifted up and share in the prosperity of the kingdom life, the abundant life that Jesus promises to all. He wants us all to prosper. He created man and he blessed them. So let's be the ones that shine the light and shine the love and give the wisdom to the world. Amen. We love you here at Kathy Bixell Ministries. We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. Um, and share this with others. I know this was long, but I am not going to apologize. You can listen to it in sections, in your car, in the shower, wherever you are. Um, Stay tuned for our next one that should be uploaded. Uh, Next week, we're going to uh, uh, start a new series. And um, I hope that this has all been a blessing to you. God bless you and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you for listening to the Kathy Pixel Podcast. For more information about Kathy, her upcoming itinerary, media resources, and more, visit KathyVixel.com. Again, we want to thank you for taking the time to listen. The Kathy Vixel Podcast is produced by Newgate Media Copyright 2020.